0: I told you this evening I wanted to talk with you about the family, and and if you've been a member of our church for any length of time, you know that about ninety-eight percent of the time I take a passage of scripture and we go through that passage of scripture literally line by line and we we preach an expository sermon on that on that passage. But I want to do something a little bit differently tonight. You see the, the title, Reflections on the Family. From a middle-aged, and as I told you, Jay Lynn said, that might be a little generous grandfather. And we're going to look at some scriptures, but, but really these are more, I don't know if you would call them musings, wisdom, reflections, thoughts on, on family life. You remember that, that I wasn't raised in a Christian family, so when Jaylin and I married, I had no experience, I had no background on what it meant. To, to, to be a good husband, and I had no idea what a healthy family looked like, at least from the inside. I saw some from the outside. Uh, Jay Lynn came from a, from a much more stable family, but it was dysfunctional on its, uh, in its own right in many, many ways. And so what you really had was two young people that really loved Jesus, really loved one another, and said, "Let's let's do the best we can by the grace of God, and uh, and see where the Lord takes all of this." We've been married over thirty-four years, three children, five grandchildren, and and uh, we've lived together long enough to know the ups and the downs of marriage life, the the uh, easy seasons and the difficult seasons of raising of raising children. And in the light of all of that, I want to share with you seven thoughts tonight. Just thoughts about family life, and, um, and we'll see what you think. The first one is this. God loves your family and wants your family to prosper. God loves your family, sometimes in the midst of the nitty-gritty detail of family life. We forget that God loves our family more than we love our family, and God wants our family to prosper. God wants our families to be blessed. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, you can look it up later, says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And... While there's a particular context to that verse, there's also some general implications of that verse. And one of the general implications is if Jesus died for us, God sent Jesus to die for us while we were sinners, how much more does he want to bless our family life now that we are his children? Jaylen and I, I was 23, she was 21. I came with absolutely no, uh, no understanding of what a Christian family looked like. She had a little bit of an idea. And all we knew as I mentioned was we loved one another. We loved Jesus, and Jesus wanted to bless us. And over the years, he has blessed us. And sometimes in the midst of the nitty-gritty of daily living, we just forget Jesus loves your family. He loves you. He wants your family to be healthy. He wants your family to be spiritually well. God loves your family and wants your family to prosper. The second thought is the flip side of the coin. Satan hates your family and is always at work to defeat, divide, and destroy it. Spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. He hates your family. And he never ceases plotting, scheming, conniving, and working to defeat it, to divide it, to destroy it, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it, Abundantly Just look around the landscape of, of uh, families today, people maybe that live on either side of you or that you work with. It's, it's not very hard to see that Satan is a thief and he has come to kill, steal and destroy. And he's doing a rather adequate job of it. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter chapter six. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, sometimes we think our enemy is our children. Or our enemy is our spouse. But what Paul is saying is our enemy is the devil. And our battle is not against our spouse. Our battle is primarily against spiritual forces of darkness. Demonic beings that we can't see. That, that Satan uses to carry out his game plan. And they do it systematically. They do it intentionally. And they do it with the singular goal of destroying our family. Peter put it like this, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we read verses like that, and you can go to so many places in the Bible that substantiate that very, those very ideas and multiply those verses over numerous times. And it might be overwhelming to think, well, what chance does my family have? Uh, I I was told today about a, a couple been married, uh, been married over four decades. Very, very upstanding Christian couple. Their Their marriage is in serious, serious trouble. Over the last several months, two very prominent pastors of megachurches, men that were probably very good, are very good men, but both have resigned for personal reasons, and one part of the destructive nature of that resignation was they've got serious problems in their families. Satan never sleeps. He's always at work, and you and I are not immune to it. He wants us to be at war with the people that are closest to us. He wants us to take up verbal verbal axes and guns and use them to shoot at one another. Verbal words that that wound and maim and injure. And so we might wonder, what good if, if these very prominent people, maybe people that have been married for a long time, very very uh, academically well-educated. What, what, what hope do I have? John put it this way in First John chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's a good verse to, to memorize. That's a good verse to, to write on a chalkboard wall in your home to be reminded that, that while Satan is out and he has nevarious plans to undermine your family, to destroy your family. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But if you ignore the war that is on, you are in danger of losing everything. You're in danger of losing everything that is of ultimate importance if you just pretend that there's no war going on, if you just act, if it's, there's no battle in the spiritual realm taking place. And so as much as God loves your family, Satan hates your family. He's always at work to defeat and divide and destroy spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. And you've got to be ever vigilant and always, always on, on guard. Number three, no one has a perfect family because no family has any perfect people in it. Now a lot of times we, we, we think that other people have the perfect life. Uh, sometimes we think that, that other people have the perfect, the perfect family. But the truth of the matter is nobody has a perfect family. The person that tells you my wife and I never have a disagreement... Is either a liar or they don't understand what a disagreement is. A disagreement is two people having different opinions. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that at all because God created us differently so that our opinions can be used to mold and, and, uh, and mesh with our mate. No one has a perfect family. This implies two things. one. You have room to grow in your personal life as it relates to your family. You have room to grow in godliness. The second thing it implies is that your family is not that different from any other family and that your family struggles are very much like other families' struggles— And there's a lot of people that you can get advice from because they've been where you are. They've been through what you have experienced or are experiencing. Uh, We set this idea up and the Christian world is the worst at it that the Christian family is the perfect family and everybody sits around the table after dinner and they read three chapters out of the Bible. Then they go to a systematic theology and the six-year-old begins to read and and extol on the virtues of vicarious atonement. And and we got this ridiculous concept of what it's like. Devotions in our house growing up were just insanity. It was like insanity. We'd be in a a room and we would be getting uh, near bedtime and I'd be getting ready to read the Bible and John would be standing on his head and Lydia would be laying on the couch listening with her eyes closed and Paul would be doing something with Legos and I would say to my wife, what's going on? What is is taking place here? She said, grow up, read the Bible, and they're going to be listening just fine. And, And they did. We need to understand that no one has a perfect family. And the reason is because you're not perfect, and neither am I. Number four. Number four. Don't measure God's blessings by your standard of living. Sometimes our standard of living is a curse rather than a blessing. Say, so I've I just blessed God for this big house with this unbelievable mortgage with this massive yard that's got, that's got, to, be, that's got to be mowed, with, the, with this unbelievable boat that, that has to be mortgaged. Uh, that is, we think so often that God's blessings are a reflection of our zip code, the car that we drive, the home that we live in, the clothes that we wear. I, I can remember, and most of you who are my age can probably remember days like this, I, I can remember the days when for us, we lived below poverty level. And I pastored a church, and I taught at a seminary as a, as a graduate student, and I would drive off to have to... I, we had only enough money for me to drive to New Orleans from the place where I was pastoring. I had to stay there several days because I didn't have enough money to come home and then go back. So that left Jaylen in a town of 300 people, with absolutely no vehicle, and three children, and and uh, a very isolated and a very isolated setting. When we when we would have birthdays, Jaylen and I we didn't buy birthday gifts for one another uh, for the first probably decade that we were married. We didn't have the money. We didn't buy Christmas gifts for one another for the first decade. We didn't have the money, and we had just enough money to buy each child one gift at their for their birthday and one gift for Christmas. But I tell you, we were a blessed family. Those were were really good days for us. But our our mindset is blessing is equivalent to a standard of living. And we look at the standard of living of other brothers and sisters, and, and we just think, well, God's blessing them more than he's blessing us. Well, if we measure blessings by possessions then maybe he is. But that's not the way that God measures blessings. God be- measures blessings by having homes that are filled with joy and laughter, that are, that are fun, where there's, where there's lighthearted moments and singing and dancing and frivolity and all of the things that come from a good, solid, healthy home. You might think, well, you know, I don't provide very well for my family. We live just on a, just, just by, uh, by the skin of our teeth. But that doesn't mean that your family's not blessed. Don't measure God's blessings by your standard of living, because what you might find is your house is not a blessing; it's a curse. There might come the day when you when you rue the day you bought the lake house and you kept your children out of church 20% of the year by going to the lake house 10 weekends a year. And then when your children get old enough and they begin to stay out of church 60% of the time and you try to convince them you really need to get in church and they look back and they say, you kept me out 20% of the time. You get me out 10 Sundays a year to go to the lake house to go boating, and you might find one day that the very things that you thought were God's blessings were, were a curse to your soul. So don't measure your blessings by your standard of living. Number five, if you want to know God's blessings in your family, then you've got to be, got to be committed to your own sanctification you can't force your spouse to grow spiritually, but you can seek to grow spiritually yourself. You've got to be serious about your faith. If you want God's hand on your family, you've got to be a fully sold-out, committed believer. That means you're not perfect, but you're, you're making two steps forward for every one step back. You're allowing the Lord to shape you and mold you and, and to conform you into the kind of person that he, that he wants you to be. You're taking seriously your spiritual commitments and you're very, very serious about your own sanctification. Your husband may not be serious, but you've got to be serious. Your wife may not be serious, but you've got to be serious. You've got to be committed To your own sanctification. That is to your own growth and holiness. Number six is closely associated with it. That is your sanctification in the family will require commitment to forgiveness and sacrificial love. It's going to require commitment to forgiveness and sacrificial love. Because we come into the marriage selfish people. And if we're not committed to to sanctification, we grow in our selfishness. We become ever more selfish if we aren't doing battle with indwelling sin. And God's blessing on the family can't coexist very well with selfishness. And so we've got to be a people that are dealing with selfishness. We've got to be a people committed to forgiveness and sacrificial love. That means means we must love our spouse in the way our spouse needs to be loved. That is, sometimes people receive love in particular ways. And we need to make sure we love them in the way that they want to be loved, the way they need to be loved, the way that God has created them to be loved. For for example, I, I could I could bring my wife flowers, she would rather have a drill. I could take her out for dinner. She'd rather have a saw. That is, I can love her the way I want to love her. Or I can love her the way that she desires to be loved. The way that she responds and the way that, she, that God has made her and created her. This means, husbands, you should love your wife romantically in the way that she senses romance. Wives, it means you must love your husband physically. Husbands, you must love your wives by listening to them and not trying to fix them. Wives, you should love your husbands physically. Wait, I think maybe I said that one. I had a list of five, that was the top five, and so... Uh, let me go on to number six and uh, six and seven. I heard somebody said, "Amen." And and uh, love your wife, love your husband by affirming him, bragging on him, not belittling him or nagging him. Husbands, love your wives affectionately, expecting nothing in return. And wives, show great respect to your husband. Never demean your husband in front of your children. You shouldn't demean them at all, but particularly in front of your children. Because they'll lose respect for you, but they'll also lose respect for their father. And so there's a great deal of give and take, and it's usually giving. It's usually the giving part that results in the blessings in marriage. Number seven. This has to do with with, um, parenting. Your most effective parenting... And greatest expression of love is done on your knees in prayer. Let me go back and, and pick one more thought up with that previous thing about um, loving your wife. A couple of things that I I practiced long ago, nobody told me, I just, I just started doing it. One is opening the door for my wife, always allowing her to go in, in front of me as a sign of, of love and deference and respect because... Uh, because she's, uh, she is really a lady. But, but secondly, we walk, we walk quite often, maybe almost every night we walk. She may be very, very tired, but she knows I like to be outside. I, I don't like to be inside when I can be outside. I don't know if it's because I can see better or what. I just like being outside. And so she may be very, very tired, and she'll say, she'll say uh, hey, why don't we go for a walk? And usually, in my selfishness, I'll say, "Yeah, I think that would be great." I know she's had a long day, but we'll go for a walk. But I, I always keep her away from the from the street when we walk on the sidewalk. I always put myself between her and anybody that might say anything as they as they pass by. And she asked me once, "Why do you why do you always walk on the inside?" And I said, "Because." It's my job. I'm not very big, but I can be pretty tenacious when it comes to my wife because it's my job to protect you. It's my job to watch out for you. It's my job to guard you. Well, number seven. Again, your most effective parenting and greatest expression of love is done on your knees in prayer. That is... I'm all about being affectionate with your children. When my children were growing up, I was a very affectionate dad. And uh, hugging and kissing and playing, I, I was just all in. I would come home from uh, from the end of the day and like just like so many of, of the fathers here, I didn't have time to sit down and, and read the newspaper. I had one task when I walked through the door, and that is give my wife a little bit of a break by going in the backyard, playing kickball, wrestling, playing Legos, reading books, all kinds, of, all kinds of, uh, of the kinds of things that you do as a dad, those things are very, very important. But if you do all of those things and don't pray, you may very well still lose, lose the war for your children. Paul Miller put it this way in A Praying Life, until you are convinced that you can't change your child's heart, you will not take prayer seriously. When you pray for your children at night, right before you pray, look right into their eyes. And dads can often see deep into the soul of a child because that's a child who will never die. And if Judas could walk with Jesus for three years and go to hell, your children and my children. Don't have anybody like Jesus that's walking with them day by day. Judas heard the teaching. Judas saw the miracles. Jesus heard the, 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 the life that Jesus lived. He saw it. He experienced it. And Judas went to hell. Look into the eyes of your little one and realize that unless God does what you can't do, and you can catechize them, just like we catechized our children... What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We could go right on down the list. You do the very same thing. But unless God reaches into their heart, they will die and go to hell. They may go to hell as a moral person. They may go to hell as a good dad or a good mom and an upstanding individual. But God, only God can change their heart. Only God can convince them they're a sinner in need of a Savior. Only God can cause them to be be born again. Until you're convinced that you can't change your child's heart, you will not take prayer seriously. But when you come to grips with that, you will pray for your child a hundred times a day. Paul Miller went on to say, say this in his book, The Praying Life. It didn't take me long to realize that I did my best praying by parenting by prayer. It didn't take me long to realize I did my best parenting by By prayer. You can give all kinds of instructions, but until you pray that God takes that instruction and works it deeply into their hearts, you haven't completed the task. Let me mention how you can pray for your children. First, pray thoughtfully. Pray thoughtfully. The same is true whether you're praying for your child or your spouse, pray thoughtfully. That is, think about the person for a moment before you pray for them. What's going on in their life? Don't just launch into praying. That's fine. That's good, and and I wouldn't demean it. But I think it's better, and maybe even best, to take a moment and just think about them for just a moment. Whether it's Jalen or Lydia, John, Paul, or... Blake or Laura or my grandkids, uh, I like to stop and think about them for just a moment. What's going on with them? Where are they in life right now? What's going on in their life today? What's what's happening in the next week or two in their life? How's my relationship with them? Is Is it close and growing and loving and tender? And then that guides me as I pray. Pray, thought second pray specifically think about what it is you want God to do if God were to say to you tell me what do you, what do you want me to do in Lydia, John, Paul tell me what is it that, that you want me to do in in Lynn well I, I've been thinking about her I've been thinking about her about her health, about her schedule, about appointments that she's got coming up. I allow those thoughts to guide me into praying specifically. The more general your prayers, the less specific God's answer. You ought to mark that down. The more general your prayer, the less specific God's answer. And when I pray, I want God to do specific things. I I want to see the specificity in the answer to those prayers. Pray specifically. Third, pray consistently. Paul talked about praying without ceasing. And by that, he meant meant that he took every opportunity to pray They had a lot more opportunity in his day because they would walk maybe 10 miles in a day and during a day's journey, he could pray numerous times, but we can find time to pray. We can pray in our devotions and then we pray when we're getting a shower. We pray when we're driving to work. We pray when we're walking to the car after work. We pray as we're taking a break from our labors and going to get a a drink at at, uh, the water fountain. Pray consistently. It's better to pray a little bit every day than to pray for an hour once a week. It's better to pray a little bit every day than it is to pray for an hour once a week. So pray consistently. Let me take us back to the very first point, and then we're done. God loves your family and wants your family to prosper. He wants it to prosper more than you want it to prosper. He wants your home to be filled with joy and contentment. He wants it to be a, a rich existence. That doesn't mean there's going to be not be any ups and downs because there are going to be ups and downs. That is, we are sinners and we will sin. And we will say things we ought not say, we will do things we ought not do. And that's why that's why a, regularly, a regular part of our vocabulary ought to be, I'm sorry. If you haven't said I'm sorry to anyone lately, you're a fool about the way that you're living, particularly the people that you're close to, because we sin against them regularly. God loves your family, and he wants your family to prosper. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word has so much to say about family life, about marriage, about child rearing, and it's scattered from Genesis to, to Revelation. And Father, we recognize that we are, we are no closer to you than we are to those who are closest to us if the relationships close to us, us are fractured or stressed, well, it's probably an indication that we're not very close to you. So let us believe that you love our family and you want to prosper it. Let us believe that our family is in a war. Let us believe that our sanctification has a great role to play in the extent of your blessing in our family. And then let us be people committed to prayer thoughtfully, specifically, consistently. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.